Good morning. How about that? Good morning. Glad you all are here. Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles, if you will? Uh, you can grab your own Bible, or there should be several Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And why don't you turn with me now to the Gospel of Matthew, as you have been accustomed to doing. But uh, instead of picking up where we left off last week in chapter 5, we are going to jump ahead uh, for uh, today and for the next couple Sundays. Uh, This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, uh, grab them. Matthew chapter 10, we will be uh, at least beginning with Matthew 10, starting in verse 16. And uh, we'll look at uh, verses 16 through 20. We'll be looking at a few other scriptures along the way. Uh, as you're turning there, just want to uh, uh, welcome you all here. Really glad you all are, are, are with us this morning. We're going to be doing for the next three Sundays something a little different. So we are going to be taking a break from our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew for the next uh, this week and in the next couple weeks to be uh, talking about something that we have talked about uh, over the last few weeks announcing, and that is some proposed additions uh, to our church constitution. So we'll be doing things a, a little different over the, uh, over the next couple Sundays. So, so bear with us. We're glad you're here, and uh, it's a very significant uh, subject matter that we will be uh, taking some time to talk about over the next few weeks. So if you'll grab your Bibles, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be well-pleasing in your eyes. Lord, I pray specifically for my own, uh, my own lips now that you would guide me and that you would strengthen me, that your spirit would uh, come upon me and upon those who are hearing uh, these words that are coming from my mouth, in particular as we look into your word, that my words would be your words and that they would adequately and uh, accurately reflect what you say in your word. Father, we come now to a time in our church that is significant as we ponder adding some amendments to our constitution. Lord, we desire to do what you desire for this church. And so speak to us through your word. We pray according to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. All right. So as I've pondered and prayed over the past oh several weeks now, it's, it's actually been months about this proposed addition uh, to our church constitution, uh, time and time again, my mind has returned back to this little portion of scripture in Matthew chapter 10. So I hope you have it uh, there uh, on your lap. You can look on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 16. It has resonated with me and it has come to my mind again and again. And I hope that this little section of scripture will help introduce and frame the conversation that we're beginning this morning. In that particular chapter, let me set it up for you. Jesus has uh, called together his 12 apostles. He's named 12 particular men to be his apostles, his sent out ones. And so he has enabled them and empowered them to go out and to minister in uh, the cities throughout the cities of Israel. He has sent them out as missionaries, if you will. After giving them some preliminary instructions, he uses in verse 16 uh, a rather poignant metaphor to picture what their experience is going to be like. Verse 16, let's read it together. Jesus says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Jesus says, I'm sending you out, apostles, like sheep among wolves. The the point of this first phrase is rather simple. He's trying to tell them that they were going to be like sheep among wolves 
wolves. That is, that they were going to be somewhat vulnerable, that they were going to be opposed, and they were even going to be persecuted as they went out on ministry for Jesus. He goes on to describe what that persecution was going to look like in verses 17 through 20. He says, be on your guard. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils, referring to the the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings, even the pagan authorities, as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when you, uh, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what you are going to say or how to say it. At that time, you, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Friends, here, Jesus describes for us in vivid terms the cost of being a disciple. There is a cost to being a follower of Jesus, to being a faithful follower of Jesus. It's essentially like he's saying to them, to us, be be prepared to live your life like a sheep among wolves. So friends, if Jesus says that to his apostles, to his disciples, it's not any different for you and I today. As Christians, we live as minorities in a majority world that is often, and I would suggest increasingly, hostile to us and our beliefs, and often will even seek to do us harm. We are sheep among wolves. Specifically, Jesus likely had in mind here persecution by the Jewish religious folks, that is, by false teachers. Notice the language. He calls them wolves. And that's significant. A little bit later in Matthew chapter 7, you can flip there in your Bible, and, or, or if you uh, want to look on the screen, you can. He uses the same imagery. There in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, he warns his disciples. Notice, notice the language. Beware, he tells them and us, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous what? Wolves. Inwardly are ravenous wolves. We also see this language uh, by Paul in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29. He, refer, he refers to, to false teachers saying, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So here's the question before us. So then, how are we as Christ followers to live in a hostile world, especially one where even religious people who hold errant views of the Bible can be to us like wolves are to sheep. Well, I think Jesus tells us, referring back to verse 16, he says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. So if we live in a hostile world as Christians, how are we to respond to that? Friends, how are we as individuals? And how are we as the church to respond to that? Well, he tells us, right? And he uses another image. Look again with me at verse 16. Therefore, Jesus says, be as shrewd. Your translation may say wise. Be as wise as snakes and as innocent as doves. See, he tells us using these pictures of two different animals 
two ways that we should respond to a hostile world. Notice the first. He says we are to be as shrewd or as wise as snakes. I don't know about you, but there aren't many animals that I am particularly scared of. Not many animals that will make me scream like a girl. But snakes are one of them. So friends, please, no toy snakes in the office, okay? Please. I am pretty scared of snakes, but in the ancient world, snakes certainly were were feared like they are by me, but they had a connotation of being shrewd because they were silent, they were dangerous, they slithered, so they were pictures of of shrewdness or of being kind of crafty, uh, as one translation says, of, of being even wise. So the first way, then, Jesus tells us to live as Christians in a hostile world is by being shrewd or wise. That is, by not hiding our head in the sand. Friends, as Christians, we can't be naive as to what is going on, right? We need to face, realistically, the dangerous wolves that are out there. The disciples' shrewdness or wisdom, however, is not to be sinister. It's not to be one of dishonesty, right? For we need not only to be shrewd or wise as snakes, but we are to, to be as, as innocent, Jesus tells us, as doves. As innocent as doves. See, doves were, are peaceful birds. When other birds uh, uh, come against them, they, they don't fight. They simply flee. And so they had this idea of being gentle, of being innocent, of not being provocative, if you will. So, prudence... See, we need both characteristics, right? We need to be both wise like snakes and innocent as doves. Both characteristics are necessary. And either characteristic without without the other can be dangerous, right? So being innocent without being prudent, we're simply naive, right? But being prudent without being innocent, and we become reckless. So friends, brothers and sisters, as we approach our response to a hostile world, As Christians, we need to be both wise and innocent. We need to be prepared and not naive. And we also need to be gentle and godly. So, with that in mind, let me introduce you to the nature of the statements, the additions, that we are proposing uh, be added to our church constitution. So let's begin by thinking about the nature of these statements. By the way, I'll say it over and over again, the statements are available at the Welcome Center, so you can find all the information as you leave and over the following weeks at the Welcome Center. As we will be elaborating and explaining in the weeks to come, the nature of these proposed additions are really twofold. Twofold. First of all, the majority the majority of the additions that we are suggesting and proposing are what I would call doctrinal in nature. They are doctrinal in nature. That is, they are statements that are expounding upon what the Bible teaches on a particular subject matter. Now, we propose that this first set, this this majority set, if you will, be added to our statement of faith. Now, we have constitutions available for you in the back, so pick one up with the proposed additions in red. So you can see what is currently in our constitution, and then you can see what we are proposing to be added to our constitution. These six proposed statements that are doctrinal in nature, uh, we propose would, uh, to be added to our, uh, our doctrinal statement, essentially, which is in uh, Article 3 of our Constitution. So each of these statements concern issues that are related to marriage, 
sexual immorality or activity, gender, and subject of the like. So if you pick it up, and I strongly encourage you to pick it up, check it out, you'll see that the six uh, subheadings of the proposed additions in this section are marriage. So we have a subject, we have a, a statement on marriage. We have a statement on sexual immorality. We have a statement on gender identity. We have a statement on celibacy. We have a statement on divorce. And we have a statement on redemption. So check those out. Uh, in each of these statements, what we attempt to do, and this was uh, really uh, with the elders and the deacons, was a process of certainly over a year as we chewed, as we searched over the scriptures. We, we want to be as faithful as we can to what the scriptures say. We are a Bible church. So this is our best effort to say this is what the Bible says in summary format over these types of issues. So I'm not going to read those six statements today. Because over the next couple Sundays, we'll be reading them, and I will be uh, doing my best to explain them to you. So, pick it up. Not going to read them to you now. The first set are doctrinal in nature. The second two additions that we are proposing are what I will call governmental in nature. Governmental in nature. That is, they relate to the functioning of the church, right? They speak to how the, the, the leadership and the membership of the church function. So, two additional statements that we're proposing. The first that we propose, uh, we suggest be added to what is Article 2. Again, you can see it in the Constitution on your way out. That is, Article 2 talks about the purpose statement of our church. Why do we exist? And we suggest uh, this first edition, and the aim of this edition is to clarify and affirm that those who join the church as members both believe to be true, our articles of faith, as well as agree to pursue practicing them to the best of our abilities by God's grace. That's a summary of the first statement. Again, you can pick it up. It's all on the Welcome Center. The second proposal that is governmental in nature, uh, we suggest be added under Article 4, which is uh, our section on church government. Specifically, in section B, which speaks to the responsibilities of the elders of the local church. Now, this second proposal, its aim is to clarify and identify the elders of the church as the church's spiritual authority in defining matters of doctrine, that is what we believe, and practice what we do as a church. Again, both statements are available at the Welcome Center, all in one nice, neat package, one page. Pick it up, check it out. We will be spending time in the next two weeks fleshing each of these statements out. So, that is the nature of the statements that we are suggesting. So, the next question then becomes, why are we proposing such additions? Why do we need them? What are the reasons for the proposals being added to our Constitution? So, let's transition now into the reason for the statements that we are suggesting. Moving from the nature of them to the reasoning behind them. The reason why we're bringing this proposal to the church is is really twofold. There are two significant, different, but related reasons why we are bringing these proposals to the church. The first set of reasons are legal in nature. 
They are legal in nature. We'll talk about that uh, here momentarily. The second set are what I will call biblical reasons. So I think there are, are legal reasons that we add these proposed statements. But certainly there are biblical reasons as well. So let's learn a little bit about the legal background for us bringing these proposals to the church. Friends, two legal realities. There are two legal realities that the local church in America is facing, including our church. One of them stems from a Supreme Court decision in 2015, and the other stems from an Illinois state law passed back in 2006. Now, before we start to talk about them specifically, I want to give you sort of the nature of these legal realities. Both legal realities deal with and involve the rights of the LGBT community. And both, in really multifaceted and different ways, pose a threat to religious freedom, both for individuals and for churches as well. But before we get into these legal realities, talking a little bit about laws and, and legal precedent, I just, I just want to say something to be very clear. We as a church... And as followers of Jesus Christ have absolutely no animus. We have no hatred. We have no animosity towards anybody identified with the LGBT movement. We want and we welcome everyone and anyone to walk through those doors and to endeavor. We endeavor, we aim, we strive to treat all with love and with respect as people made in God's image. So the reason these two legal realities that we are about about to talk about are of legal concern for a local church has nothing to do with those who might identify as LGBT, but has everything to do has everything to do with maintaining our First Amendment right to freedom of religion and being able, as a local church, to practice and to live out what we believe on issues of marriage and sexuality and gender and the like without government encroachment. So, with that being said, let's talk about the first legal reality that a church in America now faces. A little historical background is necessary. So, the first legal reality stems back to June of 2015. You probably remember, if you are aware and you've watched the news, back in June of 2015, there was a landmark Supreme Court case. A landmark Supreme Court case known as Obergefell versus Hodges. And in that particular Supreme Court case, the Supreme Court of the land held in a 5-4 decision that the fundamental right to marry in our country is guaranteed to same-sex couples, essentially legalizing same-sex marriage in all 50 states. This certainly has and will will continue to be uh, a challenge to the exercise of religious freedom and all sorts of avenues and entities in our society and in our world, possibly even in the local church. Thus far... Thus far, no U.S. church has been forced or or legally required to open its facility or a pastor to perform a same-sex wedding. But, according to Christian legal firms, unanimously, 
such as the, uh, a Christian legal society, which I've leaned on very heavily over the past year or two, churches definitely can, and they suggest should, take steps like we are taking uh, to make sure that that legal outcome is assured. So that's the historical, uh, the legal reality number one. In addition, there is another legal consideration, another legal reality that churches in this state face. So, again, a little historical background. The state of Illinois in June of 2016 adopted uh, statewide non-discrimination laws. And these statewide non-discrimination laws uh, protect uh, are, are laws uh, for sexual orientation and or gender identity. So they're known as SOGI laws, S-O-G-I. You can see on the map behind me that there are several states uh, in the union that have SOGI laws uh, that prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation and or gender identity. And you can see that our state is one of those particular states. Now these laws, what they do, I want to be clear here, these laws prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and or gender identity. And this makes sexual orientation or gender identity a protected class in three particular scenarios or contexts. Three particular scenarios or contexts. The first uh, has to do with public accommodations. The second has to do with housing. And the third has to do with has to do with employment. So the first one that we're talking about, this public accommodation, really is most pertinent to us as a local church. So what do we mean when we refer to a public accommodation? A public accommodation simply refers to property, property, land, buildings, that sort of thing, that is made open to the public, such as stores, businesses, restaurants, hotels, things of that nature. So to date, to date, no, no U.S. church has been deemed a public accommodation. However, there has been some test cases begin to surface, and there have been challenges to the fact that churches have not been deemed a public accommodation. So, accordingly, concern is justified for churches that, uh, and their facilities, particular if churches um, liberally open their doors to other people. The danger is this. Let me try to flesh it out for you. The danger is that if a church is to be deemed a public accommodation, if a church were ever to be deemed a public accommodation, then they would be unable to deny somebody facility use, let's say for a wedding, for example, on the basis of sexual orientation and or gender identity, regardless of what their particular beliefs on the matter might be. So, there are things that churches can do. There are things that churches should avoid doing to prevent it from being considered a public accommodation. And thankfully, most of the things that the, the Christian legal law firm, firms are suggesting, we as a local church are, are already doing. So I think we're in a good spot here. But here's the point. I kind of boil it down. The point is that for both legal realities, Christian legal societies are strongly recommending several action steps Four that I'll point out to you here in just a moment. Four action steps for churches to provide themselves with maximum legal protection. 
So these uh, four suggestions that I'll read to you uh, are from the Christian Legal Society. Uh, if you would like the document that I've, I've used and looked at, I'm happy to make it available to you. I've got several in my office. What I did is I asked a subcommittee, both of elders and deacons, to take a look at these, uh, this, this document, these documents that the Christian legal law firms are putting out. And, and, and I said, can you, let's look through these and let's just see, are, are there any recommendations that they're making that we haven't done? Is there anything that we need to do? And what they did is they came up with four, um, four particular recommendations from the Christian Legal Society. And I'd like to read these four recommendations to you now and then talk about how our proposed additional uh, Constitution amendments will help meet that particular recommendation. So the first one reads as follows. A church's bylaws and or constitution should contain such a purpose statement as well as a detailed statement of faith that contains doctrinal language reflecting biblical standards for sexuality in all, and I emphasize that, in all of its dimensions, and preferably with specific scripture references. They say, and I kind of highlighted this, when I read it, if a church does nothing else to guard itself against religious liberty encroachment, this fundamental measure may provide significant legal protection. So friends, the six doctrinal statements that we are proposing be added to our constitution is intended to do just what this suggestion says. By adding these six statements, we will, in case of an anti-discrimination lawsuit, we will be able to show a judge that we have no animus, no hatred against anyone uh, as it relates to facility use. But we are basing our facility usage and our decisions on what our pastor does on long-held or bona fide religious beliefs. In other words, we make decisions about what we do in the church and what I do as a pastor based on what we believe to be true from the scriptures. Number two, they suggest churches should make membership requirements consistent with their religious doctrines to help members understand what they believe about sexuality and why. Churches should also consider including in their members' covenant and or membership application, which are signed by the prospective member, a phrase that has the member agree to abide by the governing documents, including but not limited to the statement of faith and other discipline provisions. So remember we talked about two additional uh, statements that are governmental in nature. The first additional governmental statement that I referenced and that you can see at the Welcome Center is intended to address this particular suggestion. That is to connect our members' beliefs and their activities to our articles of faith. In other words, we want to show that we believe what we say we believe as as members of the local church and that we strive to actually do and follow through with what we believe, right? Number three. Third suggestion, the governing documents should also be clear as to where the spiritual authority to make decisions on different issues resides. As a general rule, courts are not supposed to second-guess churches' spiritual decision-making. So, it is important to make clear who has the spiritual authority on an issue, end quote. So the second governmental edition that I referenced that you can see in the back, uh, as previously mentioned, seeks to address this particular 
suggestion. Number four, fourth one we thought was significant. They write this, to protect against a public accommodation legal challenge, churches should have a written facility use policy, including a requirement that their facilities may be used only for purposes and in ways consistent with their doctrinal beliefs, as, as found in the Bible and the church's governing documents. And I want to highlight this last section. <clears throat> Phrase, particularly with respect to sexuality and other conduct. Thankfully, back in 2013, I tasked our deacons with coming up uh, with a new policy and procedures manual, and they did that, and and they did a great job, and that particular manual provides us with this type of facility use policy and language. So I think we're, we're doing good here, but we need to add additional statements about what we believe as a church related these, uh, to, to these particular issues so that we can fulfill this suggestion, particularly with respect to sexuality and other conduct. So that's a mouthful, but these are the two legal realities that every church in America faces. And these are four suggestions from the best of the Christian legal societies uh, that they suggest that we pursue. So we are suggesting as pastors and as deacons that we pursue these recommendations. So there are legal reasons why we are bringing these additions, these constitutional amendments to the church. Friends, let me move on to something I'm much more knowledgeable of and comfortable with, and that is the biblical reasons. Biblically speaking, friends, there are reasons for us to adopt these proposals as a church. I just want to be clear. Even if there were no legal reasons or realities at all for us as a local church to clarify and to affirm biblical teaching on marriage and sexual behavior and singleness and and related issues, even if there was no legal realities or challenges at all. Friends, it is a altogether good and an altogether helpful thing for a local church to do, to clarify. This is what we believe that the scripture teaches. In particular, given the fact that our culture as a whole increasingly is affirming and teaching beliefs on these subject matters that are very contrary to scripture. So if there were no legal reasons at all, friends, it would be good and helpful and right for us to consider this. In fact, historically speaking, historically speaking, Christian creeds and statements of faith are often born out of heresy, false teaching that is threatening the local church. And friends, don't be fooled. There is heretical teaching regarding these issues all throughout America and throughout many churches today. So, today, we need more than ever to be clear about what God thinks on these issues. About what God thinks about these issues to ensure that that we as a church are in line with them. And to be clear to those who are outside of our walls that these are the things God says is healthy. These are the things God says is right. These are the things that God says are holy. And these are the things that God says are unhealthy, are wrong, and are sinful. So fellow Christians, let me plead to you as, my, as your pastor, we must not be silent. 
we cannot be silent on these issues. I'd like to share with you a quotation from, from David Platt. It's up on the screen. He's written many books on this particular subject matter, and he says this. He says, on popular issues like poverty and slavery, where Christians are likely to be applauded for our social actions, we are quick to stand up and speak out. Yet, on controversial issues like homosexuality and abortion, where Christians are likely to be criticized for our involvement, we are content to sit down and stay quiet. Next slide. Ask a group of Christians what they think about poverty, sex trafficking, or the orphan crisis, and you'll probably get a pretty quick response. But ask that same group about gay marriage or abortion, and you'll most likely be faced with a lot of nervous hesitancy or fuzzy answers. He goes on to say this, In this day when social issues are creating clear dividing lines in society, moral or political neutrality is no longer an option for those who believe the gospel. It's simply not enough, he writes, to focus on only those issues that are most comfortable and least costly to us. And friends, he is right. He is right. So not only must we not be silent, not only does, does uh, David Platt say so, but as I, as I turn to the scriptures, again and again, we see God calling his people to faithfully present and preach his word and his truth in a world that rejects it in favor of falsehoods that they would rather hear. Friends, if you have your Bibles open, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. So if you're in Matthew, turn towards the end of your Bible, and you'll find First and 2 Timothy. There in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we see Paul writing to to Timothy. He was his understudy. Timothy was a, a, a local church leader. And there Paul gives this charge both to Timothy, and I believe it applies to every, every Christian, to every local church. Second Timothy 4, starting in verse 1, he says this, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Why? Why? Notice verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, but you, Christian, but you, Grace Bible Church, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Fringe, I believe that by adopting the proposals that we are suggesting, that we will be taking steps to do just what Timothy, uh, Paul told Timothy and us to do. So here's how we're going to close our time. We've looked at the nature of the statements. We've looked at the reasons behind the statements we are suggesting. 
I want to close our time with some frequently asked questions. So as we've been chewing and preparing, I have in my mind uh, anticipated that there will be questions. And we welcome them. Please come and talk to me, talk to the elders, talk to the deacons. We want to hear your questions. I've anticipated uh, a few of them, seven of them to be exact. So I want to work through them. Number one, how does the proposed statements on marriage and sexual behavior and gender and the like, how do they relate to church membership? The answer is twofold. Number one, first, we would ask that those who are members of the church be in agreement with the proposed statements if they are affirmed by a vote to be added to the Constitution. Secondly, we would ask that members of the church agree then to pursue living out those biblical sexual ethics that are contained in the statements. Certainly, none of us will do it perfectly. But as members of grace, we want to agree to them and to strive to live our lives in holiness and impurity in these areas, and we will repent when we fail to do so. Frequently asked question number two. Would, uh, would committing any of the acts that are mentioned in these statements in a person's past prevent them from becoming a member, if they're not a member, at Grace Bible Church? And the answer is simply no. The statements that we're suggesting are meant to be guides for the present and for future behavior of our members. We and I are much more interested in the present and in our future obedience than in any past disobedience. Friends, God is gracious and good. He forgives us all of our sins, and he moves us uh, by his Spirit into holiness and purity. Number three, is there a chance that some might be offended by the adoption of such statements? And of course, the answer is yes. It has to be yes. As I stated earlier, any time that Christians choose to speak God's truth, in particular when we are the minority view uh, at, at a culture at large, of course, people will be offended. It's also likely that some may resort to labeling us or or calling us names. Friends, Jesus tells us that this will happen. If you remember back in Matthew 5, just a few weeks ago, Jesus told us in verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So yes, friends, that might very well happen. So how should we respond when it does? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 12b through 13, he says this. He says, when we are cursed, what do we do? We bless. He says, when we are persecuted, what do we do? He says, we endure it. He says, when, when people false, <clears throat> excuse me, when we are slandered, he says, what do we do? We answer kindly. That's how we respond. I think of a scenario in Matthew 15. There was a scenario in in Matthew 15. It it resonates in my mind. I think of Jesus' response to his disciples. Jesus had, had just got done teaching something to the Pharisees that they did not like hearing. He essentially says, Pharisees, you are disobeying God's word because you choose to obey your traditions. And in Matthew 15, 12, the disciples come to him. And they say this. Then the disciples came to him and asked to Jesus, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? So friends, Jesus spoke words and people were offended by them. It happened. And it does happen. How did he respond? Verse 13. He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots 
leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, then both will fall into a pit. Friends, Jesus loved the Pharisees. Do you think Jesus loves all people? He does. Do you think he loved the Pharisees whom he had offended by teaching the truth? Absolutely. He loved them. Jesus loves everyone. But he loved them too much to allow their offense over him teaching the word of God to keep him silent. On a personal note, I want you all to know that as your pastor, maybe more than anyone, I am sensitive to how people feel, to what they think, to how they will respond to me, to what they think about our church. It's in my DNA to do so. It's who I am. And I think it's also biblical. So I, maybe more than anyone, am aware of the fact that even in this church, some of us may not agree. We may not agree with what we are proposing or even the reasons why. Friends, I want you to know, I care about the unity of this church. I care deeply about the relational health of this church. And so if this might be you over the next coming weeks, if you might disagree with one of the statements or even the reasons why we are bringing them, here is my plea to you at the outset. I would simply ask that you would consider the reasons why we are bringing such proposals, both legal reasons and biblical reasons, that you would search, that you would study, that you would look at the scriptures and see if our statements are faithful and accurate to the word of God. It is our judge, and that you would consider it, give it a fair hearing. And even if you disagree, even if you end up disagreeing, I pray that you would see the value of a local church I pray that you would see the value of a local church being able to make its own decisions about how we use our facilities and about what I do as your pastor, that we would value our independence and our First Amendment freedoms. So, number four. Does adopting the proposed additions guarantee legal protection? The answer is simply no. It does not. It doesn't guarantee that we won't be sued. It doesn't guarantee that we will win. It doesn't. We have to be clear on this. But what it does do, according to the best Christian legal minds who have repeatedly affirmed that a local church to have the best chance at frivolous lawsuits is to add statements like the ones that we are adding. Number five, what does the constitution of the church require to amend uh, to amend it, to make these additions? So Article 6 of our Constitution answered this question, so I'll read it to you. It says this, This Constitution may be amended by a two-thirds vote of voting members present, provided that the said amendment has been read to the congregation in at least two services preceding the day of the meeting. So while it takes two-thirds of present voting members to approve what we're suggesting, we encourage any and all, whether you're a member or you're not, to be here. And to vote, we want to know what you think. Number six, what is the timeline for the proposals that we are suggesting? Well, I've provided a, a, a proposed timeline at the Welcome Center, so check it out, and you see, hopefully, the way things are going to go. Uh, uh, you, uh, you, that's at the back, as well as the proposals. Uh, pick them up, read over them, pray over them, come talk to me or, or an elder if you, have, if you have suggestions. But in brief, we are going to spend time the next couple of Sundays fleshing out each of these statements. So our sermons won't be typical sermons. We're going to kind of pause on Matthew and, and sink our teeth in, in what, we're, what we're suggesting here so that it's abundantly clear what we mean and what we're doing. So 
on the 19th then, uh, excuse me, on, on next Sunday, which I believe is the, what, the 5 plus 7, help me out here, 13th, is that right? 12th, thank you. I'm a theology guy, not a math major, right? Next Sunday, <laughs> next Sunday, as you can see uh, back there, we are going to talk about the statement specifically related to marriage, divorce, and redemption. And then the following Sunday, which is the 19th, we will discuss uh, the proposed additions about immorality, gender, and celibacy. And I want you, want you to know specifically, parents, this is for you, on the 19th that there will be additional child care provided during this particular uh, time. So if you don't want your 13 or 12-year-old to be a part of that, We'll have something special for them as well. So, in closing, you've been kind to give me extra time, and I appreciate it. Number seven, how do you send questions or comments or concerns to church leaders on this particular issue? The answer is really any way that you want. We want to hear them, and we want to emphasize that we welcome your feedback. We want your feedback. Come talk to me in person. Send me an email. Send me a text, although I prefer face-to-face. Come talk to me. Talk to Jay. Talk to, to Dan. Talk to one of the, one of the deacons. We welcome your feedback. We can't emphasize that enough. I thank you for giving me a few extra minutes, uh, and uh, we just are, are so grateful that you would consider what we're proposing to you and the reasons why, and we look forward to the next couple of weeks. I'm going to ask Jay, uh, one of our elders, to come and uh, close us uh, in prayer as we consider this, uh, these very important subjects, and then, and then we'll be dismissed. So, Jay, if you would come and uh, grab, grab a mic and uh, lead us in prayer, and then we'll be, we'll be free to go. Thanks, Jay.